0: It's my honor and privilege this morning to get to introduce this morning's guest preacher, co-introduce, I should say. As I said uh, when Dr. Moeller was here, I, uh, our esteemed guests get two introductions. So Eric Metaxas is the New York number one New York Times best-selling author of If You Can Keep It, Bonhoeffer, Amazing Grace, and Miracles, and hopefully his this book. Uh, Luther, will be his sixth book on the number one New York Times bestseller list. His books have been translated into more than 25 languages. His writing has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and the New Yorker. He's been on CNBC, MSNBC, Fox News, CNN. He is the host of the Eric Metaxas Metaxas Show, which can be heard on Atlanta's Salem radio stations, both 590 and 920 a.m., He is a senior fellow and lecturer at large at the King's College in New York City where he lives with his wife and he just sent his little girl off to college this fall. His latest book, Martin Luther, The Man Who Rediscovered God and Changed the World just came out this month and I hope everyone will pick up a copy at the end of the service and get it signed. But as I said, I'm gonna be co-introducing so dad wanted to say a few words from Sydney, Australia.
1: Greetings, my friends, from down under. I am so delighted and honored to welcome, on your behalf, Eric Metaxas. On the one hand, he does not need an introduction at the Church of the Apostles. On the other hand, I was really going to fly all the way back from Australia just to introduce him and welcome him and then go back into my Middle East trip. But then he let me off the hook and so i can continue on to the middle east from here i just want you to know what a delight it is to have eric metaxas and you are in for a treat if you have not heard eric before and his book on martin luther it is a page turner and i'm glad it's already on the bestseller list even though it's only been out for a few weeks and eric i know you're tired you're worn out from going all over the country with the book tour. I just want you to know that my colleagues down in the office have Red Bull for you. I hope they will help you out. Please give Eric Metaxas the warmest Apostles' welcome that you can muster. God bless.
2: Oh, now cut that out. God bless you. Wow. 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 Oh, man. God bless you. Please, please, please be seated. It can only go downhill from here for me. Why did you do that? Why? That was the flesh. I rebuke you. But you could do it any Wow. I get, I get overwhelmed being here when, when just to hear the voice of Michael Youssef cheers me up. Uh, now, that's just his accent. He's not putting it on, I hope. But he just cheers me up, and it just puts spine. It's put steel in your spine to hear him talk, doesn't it? He just says, brother, would you like a Red Bull brother? It's like, I hadn't thought of that, but I never drink them. But yes, I would. I would. How did he do that? Um, it, it really is a joy to be here. When, whenever you're in God's house, with God's people, there should be joy. Uh, If you're lacking joy this morning, uh, we'll see what we can do, because it's really the key to what it is to know Jesus. Uh, That's part of the story I want to tell this morning. But I want to say again, thanks for welcoming me and making me feel so incredibly welcome here. Can you imagine that a man of the stature of Michael Youssef feels like, oh, he has to apologize because he's not here to personally introduce me? Uh, he's never here, so come on. <laughs> Who? But imagine if I just insisted, I said, no, Michael, you, you need to be there. You need to be there. But he, he, he's ably represented uh, uh, with his family. And Josh uh, and I went, went to dinner uh, last night with the newest Yusuf. I don't know if you know, but there's an eight-day-old Yusuf named Noah Phineas. Have you heard about him? Yeah, he's a real hot shot. He, uh, no accent discernible yet, but what a joy to be with Emily and just uh, the newest Yusuf. Just a joy. I, I feel thrilled to be here. Now, as some of you already know, this is Reformation Sunday, not just Reformation Sunday. If that's my wife, I'm not here, by the way. Seriously, I don't want her to know that I preach. Um, <laughs> if, if you know, well, you probably already know, this is the five hundredth anniversary of what many of us celebrate every year, Reformation Sunday. It's uh, Tuesday is October 31st, 2017. That's exactly 500 years since the, the actual date, of course. Now, you realize the 500th anniversary is kind of big. Did you know that? I have some mathematical genius friends. They told me that that it comes up literally once, only once every 500 years. That's the kind of level that a 500th anniversary is. Think about it, really, and then stop. Um, but it's only because of that that I was convinced to write the book on Martin Luther. Because people, everywhere I go and I sign books, people say, I know who you should write your next book on, you know, William Carey. Like, okay, I, there's a lot of heroes of the faith, but you can't, you know, I can't spend two or so years writing about every one of them. But when my friends, Greg Thornbury and Marcus Speaker, who, to whom I dedicate the book, twisted my arm and they said, Eric, the 500th anniversary is coming up. Do you understand how rare that is? I said, no, how rare is it? They said, it only happens once every 500 years. And that's when the light bulb went off. And they said, and, and by the way, you need to know about Luther because a lot of people assume that I know everything I've written about like I've known about it for years. I don't. I bring a lot of ignorance to every book. That's part of my charm. Uh, it is kind of, but it's kind of true that when you come into something ignorant, when you learn things, you're more excited than if you'd already known it for 40 years. So uh, they convinced me that Luther is so influential uh, that, that eventually I thought, my goodness, this is like with so many of my books where I feel like an idiot not having known how important it is. And if you don't know how outrageously influential Luther is. Don't be embarrassed, because as I say, that was me right before I wrote the book. So, um, But it's kind of an amazing thing. I was was astounded by that. And then to be here, so many people have said, Eric, where are you going to be on Reformation Sunday this year? It's the 500th anniversary. You're going to be in Wittenberg, right? No. I'm going to be in Atlanta. Right here. This is it. Folks, this is it. This is it. Uh, This is it. This is the date. So the question, of course, is what are we celebrating? So I want to tell you uh, briefly the story of Luther. Some of you will know this better than I. Some of you don't know it. But uh, we'll start at the beginning. Luther was born in... We're not sure. We're not sure. Even his mother, uh, who I'm sure was nearby when it happened. uh, She had to be, right? Uh, She didn't know. They didn't know... If his birth date was 1482, 1483, or 1484, that's not a joke. I give all the details, anything that I don't say here. It's obviously in my book. i got to tell you, uh, they didn't know. Uh, They could never quite remember or get it, which is very strange, but they do know that he was born on November 10th, which is nice. So he was born on November 10th, and this was a culture. Now, you understand that the late medieval period, they were obsessed, in a way, with the judgment of God, God as a judge. And if you go to churches in Europe, you'll see some paintings. Where was I? I was in France. I can't even remember the name of the town, but a big cathedral. And there's a huge painting of the last judgment with Christ as judge. And it's really fearsome. And I would argue sort of theologically incorrect because it's a little confusing. If you see God only as judge, you you get a funny picture. It's good to see him as judge, but you also have to see him as Savior and so on and so forth. But imagine living in a time where people didn't think of Jesus as human and loving, but as just like God, the Father, just scary judge, right? So, you know, if you figure it out, like, if you have that view of God, God says, well, I can solve that problem. I'm going to send my son Jesus to become a human being to walk among you and to die for you. And then you'll realize how much I love you, and you'll see that you can, you can pray to me directly, and I'm not just a distant, fearsome judge. But what human beings do in our sin is that eventually we screw that up too, and we think of Jesus as a distant male judge figure, and so we have to, you know, elevate Mary. We can pray to Mary because she's a mother and she's human and whatever. It's like, excuse me, I think Jesus was also human, right? But we forget. And the Catholic Church at that time, this is not about bashing the Catholic Church, trust me on that, But at the time, they slid over into this view, and so everybody was horrified at the idea of judgment and salvation and death, just the idea of it. Nobody knew what's going on, and they just assumed, because hell is so real, that they may well be going into the the clutches of demons forever and ever. So when the baby was born, within as short a time as possible, literally the next day, November 11th, they took one-day-old Martin Luther to the church 100 yards away, right by their... I've been there. It's, it's amazing. Uh, and they had him baptized. And it was St. Martin's Day, November 11th. Therefore, they said, we'll name him Martin, right? So as the story goes, his parents... Now, there's so many things. I don't have time to get into this, but there's so many things that I discovered are not true about Martin Luther. Uh, it's it it is kind of funny because when you have a figure that is as revered, I mean, especially in the Lutheran Church, but treated you know like like a Paul Bunyan figure, he's just this 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 uh, this figure that can do no wrong. So they build this hagiography where they tell you it's kind of like you know Lincoln uh, <clears throat> being born in the log cabin, which is true. But you know you kind of have this view of humble beginnings. Or you see George Washington, you think of him throwing the. Uh, silver dollar across the Potomac. All these legends uh, come up. And one of them is that Luther was born, he was incredibly poor. He himself said, I'm the son of a poor miner, comes from peasant stock. Well, I did the research and I can tell you that's not true. It's not even close to true. Luther was the son of a man in the mining business. It's kind of like saying Jimmy Carter is a humble peanut farmer. Not really, his hands don 't have dirt under the fingernails that 's not he doesn 't qualify he 's a businessman in the peanut farming business, right? So Luther was a son of a man in the mining business who was successful. He owned four smelt works. Anybody own even one smelt work here? No, so you can imagine so he was he was a successful businessman, borrowed a lot of money from the woman he married, Luther's mother, to start the business. So they were working hard. They weren't wealthy. They were working hard, but they were not... He wasn't a poor miner. So Luther is brought up by this kind of up-and-coming businessman. And imagine a a culture where you have the ability to move socially, socioeconomically, already in the 1480s in Germany that existed. So here he is. He didn't get a good good education, but he's going to send his son, little Martin, to get a good education, so he sends them to the best school to learn Latin and so on and so forth. There was some archaeology, and this is, it's really cool because when I write a book, I don't expect to find anything new, I'll be honest. I think I just want to tell the story as it's been told uh, and, and kind of, uh, or tell it anew, as I say, but I don't expect to find anything new. I'm not a scholar that spent 30 years digging and digging, but I discovered a number of things uh, that really aren't widely known. In 2003 and 2008, there was some archaeology done in Mansfeld, the town where Luther uh, grew up, and the home that they have celebrated as his house for five hundred years, his birthplace, uh, or not his birthplace, but but the place where he grew up it 's actually three times larger than they thought. The foundations they, they, they did this archaeology and they discovered, oh yeah, he was he, they really were prosperous right and then they found a garbage pit, they found all the food the luther's ever ate. This sounds like a joke. If you read my book, you will get chapter and verse. It is kind of unbelievable what they found. But you can tell from the diet and from other things, little artifacts that they found, that these were well to do people. So Luther sent to the best schools. He was obviously a super genius, okay? Uh, Don't be fooled. The man was a genius. He sent to good schools so that he can go to the University of Erfurt. Of course, his father never went to to college and become a lawyer. He's going to study law and he's going to come back home to Mansfeld and join the family business. Okay. Well, as I said, it was a culture obsessed with eternity, obsessed with death, obsessed with the idea of hell. So the standard story, again, not true, is that one day Luther's walking along and there's a thunderstorm and he hits the dirt. Mommy, he's scared. He didn't say mommy, but, uh, but he got really scared. He figures he's going to die. And in that moment... He says, I could be stepping into eternity and hell forever. And he was so scared, he cries out to the, to the patron saint of, of minors, St. Anne, he says, St. Anne, save me. If you save me, I'll become a monk. And, of course, he doesn't die. And he decides, okay, I will become a monk. I said, I would, and I will. Well, that's half true. A lot of the stuff that you've heard about Luther is, is half true. And, again, I try to clarify it in my book because it's obvious When you look at his life up to that point, he had all kinds of serious religious influences. There's no doubt about it. Uh, He was thinking about salvation. He was very sensitive. He was very intelligent. He's clearly thinking and thinking and thinking about this. So the moment that he goes through this horrible thunderstorm where he really is convinced he's going to die... It's not like it just occurred to him, "Uh uh-oh, St. Anne, save me. He'd been thinking about the monastery. It's obvious that he'd been thinking about this for years, but he wouldn't dare go against his father's wishes. But then he's thinking, but I don't want to go to hell forever. I think I may do this. And so that's when he makes his decision. But it wasn't some kind of a snap decision like it just occurred to him. So he goes into the monastery. And what happens in the monastery? Well... There was kind of a two-tiered system. Now, a lot of Protestants, everything I say to criticize the church of that era applies to Protestants and evangelicals today in some measure. So I hope you're squirming, some of you. Um, Because it's kind of funny. It's human nature, right? Human nature... over and over and over does the same things. And what I'm talking about here was that there was a two-tiered system in the church. There was a two-tiered system that if you are a monk or a priest or a nun, you're holy. If you're anything else, eh, we don't know. We're worried about you, right? Luther bought into that, so he thought, I've got to go to the monastery. If I want insurance, fire insurance, I want to know that uh, I'm going to heaven, the only thing I can do is leave the world behind and dive into holy orders. Now, that's what he does. But he finds out as soon as he gets into the monastery that he's only just begun and that really now there's clarity, real clarity, on how you get to heaven. It's not just to enter the monastery. Now you have to pray hard, really, really hard all the time. You have to deny yourself extraordinarily any pleasure, anything, any comfort uh, he fasted till he was skin and bones, basically. Many did, but he was hardcore. Because if, if you know that's the way to heaven and you're, you're smart, you're going to go for it. He went for it. Um, confession, another big thing. This is, again, this is some complicated stuff. I can't go into it. But the bottom line is that there was this idea in the medieval church that if you do not confess your sins to a priest who then absolves you, Your sins will drag you to hell forever. So you say, well, but I I confess to God in my heart. Doesn't count. Doesn't count. Your faith does not save you. The priest has been authorized by God to save you. And if you confess to him, he can make it happen. Otherwise, you're dead. Now imagine believing that. Thanks to Luther, we don't believe that. But imagine believing that. So Luther would go to confession And he would confess and confess and confess till his father confessor, a real hero in the book, uh, von Staupitz, real father figure to Luther. Von Staupitz would get so sick and tired, his eyes would be crossed, he'd be sweating, listening to this maniac monk confess every stray thought from the previous week. And Luther would, would, would be in there for hours and hours and hours. He would confess, for example, something horrible like, I prayed for five hours straight on Tuesday, and then I had a flicker of pride for having prayed five hours straight. And that flicker of pride is from hell and will drag me to hell, and I need to confess it, Father. Well, this guy was going nuts listening to Luther. At some point, he actually says to him, Martin, bring me something like adultery, murder. <laughs> now, that, I quote that in the book. He actually said that at some point. He was so fed up, he said, you're not getting it. You are not getting it. You clearly hate God, and you think God hates you. Now, I can understand where you'd get that idea. I can understand where we would get that idea. But it's not true. God loves you. Jesus died for you. You clearly don't get it. Luther did not get it because everything in that culture, in that church, was militating against that issue, that idea of grace, even though It's at the heart of the Scripture. It's at the heart of the faith. Somehow, over the centuries, this had been obscured. And I warn you that that kind of obscuring can happen in this church, in your church, in the Protestant church. It's what human beings do. We're sinners and we screw stuff up. And if you don't see this this, uh, idea of grace or you don't rehearse it in your life every day to understand it, the normal thing is to do what the medieval church did, to slide over into, here's the way you get to heaven. Make sure you go to church. Make sure you're dressed appropriately. Make sure you show up on time. Make sure you tithe. Make sure you do this, do that. If you screw up, well, uh, try to make it right. There's, there's a way, right? Well, Luther figures, I want to figure out how to do it. What's the way to do it? So he figured it out. You pray, whatever, and then you confess everything. And it... So he's doing this. He's working the program, so to speak, But he doesn't feel like he's getting any closer to heaven. It's like trying to climb a ziggurat or a ladder or you're trying to get there. Now, every culture in the history of the world has understood that there's a breach between us and God. That is why all the religions of the world exist. There has never been an atheistic tribe. Did you know that? It's kind of funny. Human beings know innately, because we're creating the image of God, because these things are true, we have an innate knowledge that there is a gulf between us and God or heaven or the gods or whatever it is. And we need to concoct rituals to make it right. And every culture has done that. Usually the rituals involve blood, sacrifice, something. How do we all know that? It's interesting, isn't it? Well, we all know that we need to do something. But what do we do? Well, from the beginning of time, there have been things we do. But Luther, living 15 centuries after Jesus, still thinks there's stuff he needs to do to earn his way to heaven. And again, I would suspect that people listening now, you still think, yeah, but there's something I I have to do. Maybe. I'll get to that. But the point is that Luther was so obsessed with this, and he figures, I'm going to do it. I want to get there, but he's feeling no peace. Now imagine fasting till your skin and bones, being in a monastery, praying endlessly. You cannot imagine the hours that they would wake up in the middle of the night to pray and pray and pray and pray and pray and pray and pray, and, pray and, pray. and then to go to confession and to be racking your brain for the thoughts that have flickered through your mind that week to make sure you confess it. Or that little nothing will drag you to hell if you don't confess it to the priest and he absolves you. This is a recipe for torture, folks. Now, there are people who live that way. Even people who think that they're, you know, they say, oh, I'm not a Catholic. But I, but the point is that this is the normal way human beings drift. It's where a sin nature causes us to go because we sort of think the way everybody's thought since the beginning of time. This is what I have to do. I've got to do something. Even if you know Jesus died for you and all that, there's still a tendency to say, yeah, 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 but still to kind of do this. Luther is doing this like a madman, and he is not feeling the peace of God. He's miserable, miserable. And his father confessor says, well, what can we do for Luther? He's, really, he's brilliant, he's intense, and he's driving himself and me Nuts. So he says, well, maybe, uh, maybe he needs some fresh air. Maybe he needs to take a walk. I'll, I'll send him to Rome, which is 800 miles south. I'll see you later. Uh, you know, in those days, the buses were, you know, very spotty. Uh, you really uh, could almost never hail a bus in those days. So he had to walk 800 miles there and back. They thought this will clear his head. This will help. It will get him out of himself. You know, people who are just obsessed with Twitter Um, You got to get out. Get out. Go for a swim. Go for a hike. Something. Leave the phone at home. Luther goes to Rome and back. Didn't look at his phone once, I can guarantee you that. But it was still the same thing. He was not finding the answer. So, Luther was doing one thing that nobody else was doing in those days. He was reading the Bible. Now, you understand the printing press had just been invented. People didn't have Bibles hanging around. Nobody read the Bible. The Bible was an extraordinary commodity. Barely existed how many Bibles were there if printing had just been invented. It wasn't the kind of thing you are going to flip through and read. You would read commentaries on the Bible or commentaries on the commentaries. So it's not that they didn't revere the Bible, but they didn't have it to look at directly. Luther decides he must look at the Bible directly. This comes out of the intellectual um, trend of the time called humanism. I won't go into that either, but it's kind of amazing. They, they started to look at the original documents, the original documents of, of Aristotle and uh, Virgil, and all of the the Latin and the Greek and the Hebrew, and suddenly they're looking back, and Luther says, I want to read the Bible itself. So he reads the Bible, but he thinks in his misery, maybe in here someplace I can find the golden key that unlocks the mystery of the universe. Maybe it is in this book someplace. Now imagine if nobody really read the Bible, how exciting that would be to say, what is in here? What am I going to find in here that others have missed? So he reads it, and he reads it and reads it and reads it, and for years he is teaching it at the University of Wittenberg because von Staupitz realized, i got a live wire here. We'll let him teach. Uh, So they let him teach, and he's teaching the Scriptures, and he's happy because he's not having to teach Aristotle anymore, and he despised Aristotle. I find that hilarious. I'm not going to go into the details, but it's just kind of funny because I'm half Greek and half German, and boy, did he hate Aristotle. But... (laughs) I think it's because Aristotle was doing what Luther saw, what was doing. He was trying to make a rational path to God. And in the end, Luther realizes that's not quite possible. So Luther is reading the Scriptures, and one day around 1517, now it's not, this is not what we're celebrating on the 500th anniversary. The 500th anniversary is from him nailing the 95 Theses to the castle door in Wittenberg. But around that same time, it's not clear exactly when, he sees something in the Scripture that everything else sort of pointed him to this. And then finally he sees in Romans chapter 1, 17, this idea of righteousness, the righteousness of God, which he had seen as a horrible thing, beating him like a brick into hell, the righteousness of God, this horrible thing this horrible God who hates me and who loves casting me into hell, this judge, this righteous judge, he sees something for the first time, that the righteousness of God is a gift that God gives to me. He gives me his righteousness as a gift. That's the good news. I can't earn it. I will never earn it. He gives it to me as a gift and it says, the righteous shall live by faith, the just shall live by faith. All I need to do is have faith in God and this free gift. And then it's given to me. So I don't need to be climbing up ladders or ziggurats or do I don't need to do I can't. Now there are a couple of metaphors that might be useful. Think about owing an infinite debt, right? Every human being since the beginning of time has this sense that I owe an infinite debt. To reach heaven, I've got to do some stuff, right? So we all do stuff. We save our pennies and we try to pay the debt. We try to get equal. We try to get whatever it is that we can do to, to, to raise ourselves up from where we are. We try to pay the infinite debt. But if you save your pennies and save your pennies and save your pennies and you scrimp and save and you only eat potatoes to save money on groceries and you take that money and you put it in a pot, those pennies do not begin to reach infinity you have an infinite debt. Whatever you're doing is effectively worth nothing. So you'll never get any peace. Luther was trying to pay off his debt and getting nowhere, getting more miserable. And then he realizes, "Oh, here's the problem. The debt is infinite." If I'm trying to pay an infinite debt, how much is 10,000 plus infinity? Any math people? <laughs> it's it's infinity. You haven't changed infinity. It's infinity. Your infinite debt, you can't do anything about it. You either pay infinity or you lose. No one can pay an infinite debt except God, who did. On Calvary 2,000 years ago, he paid the debt. Luther finally gets this, and he says, why have I been scraping and saving and trying and trying and trying and trying to earn heaven? I'm wasting my time. It's also like trying to swim to Hawaii, okay? You're in, you're in California, and you go, you know what? I, I don't know. I'm gonna get, I'll give it a shot. I'll give it a shot. Maybe I can get to Hawaii, okay? So if heaven is Hawaii, you give it a shot. Some guy swims 10 yards and drowns. You laugh at him. Ha, ha. I made it 100 yards, and, and then I drowned. <laughs> Somebody says, I could swim 40 miles. Yes, you could. You're amazing, and then you drown. No one can make it to Hawaii. Do you get that? There is not a soul. Mother Teresa and Hitler both drown. So what are your options? You're trying to climb to heaven. You're trying to swim to Hawaii. You're trying to pay an infinite debt. The only wisdom is when you realize, I can't do it, ever. And then you cry out and you say, Lord, I can't do it. And the Lord says, Good, we're getting somewhere. You realize you can't do it. And you say, Lord, will you help me? And the Lord says, yes, I can help you, and I will help you, and I have helped you. 2,000 years ago, I paid the debt. I sent my son to traverse the infinite distance from heaven to earth. You cannot traverse it, but I can. And in the person of my son, I came the infinite distance to pay the ultimate price to suffer and die For you, you are done. When Jesus said it is finished, all you need to do is by faith say thank you. When Luther understood this in 1517, can you imagine what happened in his mind? He went half crazy. He thought, I've discovered the golden key at the center of the universe. Here it is, obscured by 15 centuries of tradition. We've missed this. And so, of course, he wanted to tell the world. Now, around that same time, 1517, the reason we're celebrating the 500th anniversary this week is that Luther was seeing something that's related called the practice of indulgences. Now, we've all been taught, oh, indulgences were corrupt and wicked and horrible. Like many good things, it didn't start out that way. It started out like, you know, you come to a judge and the judge says, okay, I want you to pay this fine and do some community service and do this. It had a, it it was about... Doing, paying your dues. It was about penance, okay? We want you to feel uh, the debt of the sin that you have done, so do, do these things. So pay some money to the church or whatever. Well, of course, because human beings are corrupt and because the human beings in the church in those days were corrupt, it began to slide into corruption and into we kind of need that money. And we better preach that idea of indulgences a little harder than the community service and the jail time's not doing us any good. Hit the indulgences hard because we want to build St. Peter's in Rome and we've got all kinds of other debts. Luther saw that this indulgence practice was getting out of hand. People would come to him. Now, he was a priest, not just a theologian and a monk. People would come to him in confession and say, Father, I've sinned, blah, 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 blah. But, and they'd reach in and they'd pull out a certificate, an indulgence certificate that they'd paid money for, and they'd slap it down It's like, hey, Padre, What's this worth? You know, they're expecting that he's going to say, oh, you don't have to say 50 Hail Marys or do this or do this. You're you're good. You paid your debt. Luther saw that this is corrupting the souls of the faithful. They're thinking that money can buy their way into heaven, buy them out of purgatory, on and on and on. So he's grieved, and he realizes as a humble monk who loved the church, who never wanted to break away from the church. This is another one of the many things that I end up debunking in the book because we have this image of him saying that I'm going to nail these theses to the door and you know send a message to Rome not at all he was a humble son of the church who sees this thing and he says I as a theologian need to bring the, bring some attention to this issue of indulgences we need to have an academic debate among the theologians let's do it so he writes up 95 debate points in Latin and post it on the local bulletin board, which is people had debates all the time. So that's what you would do. You'd post some theses someplace. So write some in Latin, post them on the local bulletin board, which happens to be the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church. Now, us today, we think, man, Luther wanted to send a message, so he wasn't gonna he wasn't gonna put the 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 the, the, the ninety five theses on the bulletin board down by the laundry room. He's going to do something nuts. He's going to go to the castle church in the center of town and put it on the front door. What a message that will send. Except here's the problem. The local church door was the local bulletin board. Doesn't that change things when you realize that? We have this image. There, You've seen the images of Luther with the hammer and nails pounding this thing. Even the idea that he's pounding it on the door makes it seem like... Man, he's sending a message with that hammer. Look at him. You know, there were no pushpins in those days. (laughs) That was the bulletin board. Luther was simply posting an academic debate notice on the local bulletin board next to the, you know, my cat Smokey has been missing for two weeks and I want to give guitar lessons. Please call this number. This was not how we see it. We see it as this great heroic moment. It was not. This was a humble monk trying by by the proper procedures to bring this ugly issue of indulgences to the notice of the theologians so that the archbishops and then Rome eventually would begin to deal with this. And he thought that they would, of course. So he posts that on there 500 years ago. He may have used paste. That's not as heroic as a hammer and nails, right? Uh, He may have given it to the church custodian. He may not have posted it himself. But in retrospect, we remember it this way. Well, the reason we remember it this way is because it set off a firestorm Luther never in a million years dreamt. Suddenly, this humble suggestion that we look into this issue was taken as an affront uh, to the Pope and to the church. He never meant it that way. But it escalates and explodes into... A nightmare. He said, how has this happened? It's kind of like you're trying to explain what you did. You say, no, 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 you're getting me wrong. Let me explain. And you dig the hole deeper and deeper and deeper. Because while you're explaining, you say some other stuff you shouldn't say. (laughs) Well, Luther, before you know it, has become the thing that he never dreamt in a million years he would become. Persona non grata with the Pope, whom he reveres, with the church church. He loves and serves. It escalates to the point where finally he's excommunicated and sa- they tell him, you've got to come to Rome. Now, if he goes to Rome, he's going to be burnt at the stake. So his local prince, Frederick Third, another one of the heroes in this book, says, I'm going to use my political chits with the, uh, with the Vatican. Uh, the pope needs my vote for something. And so I'm going to, I'm going to put some pressure that we have this in Germany. So it ends up that he doesn't go to Rome. He's going to have this trial in Germany in the city of Worms. We We say worms. Some of us say nightcrawlers. <laughs> um, and the gathering in Worms is, the term is diet, okay? It's, it, it's a sort of old uh, Latin term, but the diet of Worms, So, you, you know, maybe in high school you had it on your test, diet of worms, giggle, giggle, and then you forgot after the test, you forgot about that. But so a diet is called in Worms, Luther has to go. Now, what happens is on the way to Worms, he is hailed as a hero. His writings, this is the difference between Luther and all the reformers before, Jan Hus, Zwing, uh, uh, Jan Hus uh, uh, Wycliffe, Tyndale, who Jan Hus had said effectively exactly what Luther said. But he was burnt at the stake. Why? Because the printing press had not existed. And the power of the church and state was able to crush dissent. If you said, excuse me, I've noticed something here in the Bible that's slightly different from what you're saying. I just want you to take a look at this, please. They would say, there can be no difference between what we, the church, are saying and what the Bible is saying. We determine how you read the Bible and what it says and if you persist, as Jan Hus did, we will crush you and burn you at the stake. So Luther now exists in a time when the printing press was just invented. So guess what? His writings were scattered across Germany and Europe, and people are debating these things. Eventually he learned to use it, right? Um, I'm not saying it was like using Twitter to get around the mainstream media, but I'm suggesting that some people might have said that. But can you imagine there's only one way to get the message out and you can't get it out. They control the power, controls the way you get it out. And then suddenly there's a thing called the printing press and you can print things and they sell like hotcakes and people read them and debate them and reprint them and you're not making any royalties and these things are flying around Europe. The ideas have caught on with the people. The people had never had anybody speaking for them before. And they made Luther a hero. They loved him. And so he goes to Worms, and he goes into that room in 1521, and he is told, recant what you have written. Are these your books? Yes or no? Yes. Do you recant what you've written in them? Yes or no? If you recant, if you sign on the dotted line, we'll let you walk out of here. Do you recant? It's like a plea bargain, right? Just sign on the dotted line. I know you didn't. Just shut up, sign the paper, and you're out of here. You won't do jail time, all right? Luther could not say, all right. It's like my friend Chuck Colson in my book, Seven Men. I talk about Chuck Colson. He would not do the plea bargain because he said, I'm a Christian, I have to tell the truth. If I go to jail, I go to jail. Oh, just sign in the dotted line, you're crazy not to. Luther said, I I don't care what you're saying. I cannot. God's going to hold me responsible. I'm way more scared of God than of what you can do to me. He didn't say that in a cheeky way, but that's what was happening. So he says to them, ultimately, unless you show me from the Scriptures where I have screwed up, you show me. And if you can show me, I will say I'm sorry and I will recant. But if you can't show me, I'm stuck. If you don't show me and I don't see where I made the error, I can't pretend that I did anything wrong. He says, I'm stuck. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. That, folks, is one of the most extraordinary moments in the history of the world. When a man stood in front of the arrayed power and said, I stand for truth. If you want to kill me, kill me. Well, that's the Diet of Worms. Now, I'm going to freak you out with something before I close. If you read the book, you already know this. In 1521, in this place called Worms, which you've never heard of except for the Diet of Worms, Luther took a stand for God. It's his most holy moment in history, that, more than the 95 Theses. He takes a stand for God. He's threatened with death. He doesn't care. He takes his stand for Jesus. And he doesn't die, and he goes on, and that becomes his most famous holy moment of his life. Well, remember I told you that he was named on November 11th, 14-something, 1483. He was named for St. Martin. When I was writing the book, I kind of thought, St. Martin, who is St. Martin? I don't really know. Let me look it up. I look it up, and there's a bizarre parallel. St. Martin, after whom Luther was named, was alive in the 400s, 11 centuries before Luther, and he became a Christian against his parents' wishes. He joins the, the, the Roman army, but they didn't see any battles. And then when they see a battle in a place called Borba he says, I, I cannot fight because of my Christian faith. I cannot kill. Well, he's in big trouble. And at this place, he takes his stand for God. He's threatened with death. And he lives, and it becomes the most famous moment in his life. It's because of that 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 we think of him as St. Martin. But very curious, right? Here you have the Roman Empire, and he takes his stand for Christ in the early 400s, faces death, and lives, and that's his signature moment. Eleven centuries later, Luther, in worms, does the same thing with the Holy Roman Emperor in the room, takes his stand for the faith, is threatened with death, lives. That's his most famous moment. It's kind of a weird parallel, wouldn't you say? Well, it gets freakier, much freakier. I kind of thought, this is weird. I don't know, I never heard of St. Martin really, uh, certainly never heard of Borba Tomagos. Where's Borba Tomagos? I look it up, parentheses, modern day, worms, Germany. So if you think that's a coincidence, you are not being rational. Could you ever doubt knowing that that is a historical fact? It's not a religious fact that I put in my book. That's history. Could you ever doubt that the God of history is the God of history? That he is sovereign? That he is far more powerful than anything we could ever dream? When I read that, you can imagine that I kind of had to read it 40 times before I believed it. But you start realizing... God is in the business of human history, and it's confusing. It's even more confusing when you realize no one has ever written about that until me. Who am I? Truly, who am I? I just happen to see this because I feel God kind of nudging me to look into who is St. Martin. You realize that the God of history is so big and so amazing that if he says, I paid the price for you, I paid the infinite debt that you owe, I paid it. Should we doubt him? Can we imagine that even though he knows how terrible we personally are, because some people say, well, God doesn't know, you don't know how bad I really am. I think God does. And I think he says, that's the point. I know everything you've ever thought, everything you've ever done, and I love you so much that I would die a horrible death for you over and over and over, if that's what's necessary to bring you, my beloved child, into my presence for eternity, which is where you belong. Folks, that's a big God. If you don't understand how big God is, if you think that it's kind of like somebody says, well, I think that guy's got a lot of money. He'll, he'll pay for the uh, he'll, he'll get the tab at the end of the meal. He'll pay for it. You know, he's got he's got he's got way more money than you do. And he go, "Well, look, I he's not a billionaire. Let me at least get the tip." That's what we try to do with God, right? We're like, "God, I know you're amazing, but I know I got to do something, don't I?" Well, here's the final point, folks. Yes and no. When it comes to your salvation, you can do nothing. Nothing. You cannot add a penny to the infinity God has already paid on the cross. The tip was covered. It was all covered. A penny of yours is as nothing. It is a waste of your time, and it's an insult to the gift giver. He's like, you you don't think I I gave a good tip? You trying to insult me? It's covered. It was covered 2,000 years ago. It's covered. Our only response, and this is where our doing something can come in, our only response is to say, I can do nothing I admit I've tried to do stuff, and I've insulted you, God, because by trying to do stuff, it makes it real clear that I actually think I could earn my way to heaven, so I have no clue that the debt is infinite and the distance is infinite, and I'm not going to make it. Uh, And then I'm also kind of sending the signal, like, you can't do the whole thing yourself. I need to add to it. God says, no. I died on the cross... I give you my righteousness. You're done. It's over. All you can do now is say, I believe it, and I thank you. And when you realize what God did for you, if a friend said, I want to die for you, those guys want to torture and kill you, and they will. But I'm going to intervene. I'm going to say, no, do it to me. And they say, oh, you want us to do it to you? Yeah, we'll do it to you. And they torture and kill your friend in front of you. How would you feel to that friend from now till the end of time, to the end of eternity? You would love that friend for what he did for you. You would love that friend because he didn't need to do that. But he did it. And it would rip your heart out to watch it. And it would, your, your gratitude would explode. That is what God did for us. God is not a cartoon figure. He didn't do it in once upon a time land. He did it for you, not for humanity, for you. And all we can do is get it and say, okay, I get it. Lord, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And my life will be a hymn of praise and thanksgiving to you for what you did to me. Well, how do you express your thanks? By doing good works, by praying, by fasting sometimes. In other words, you want to live your whole life to do whatever you can to say thank you to God. And you'll never begin to thank him enough, but you want to do something. So you say, Lord, what can I do? Let me do something. I'll feel better. The Lord says, all right. You see the hungry people? Feed them. I love them as much as I love you. You see the people who are struggling and suffering and who have problems? maybe you can help them, pray with them, hold their hand, be with them. Can you do that? Yes, Lord, I can certainly do that. Maybe you have money, energy, time, talents. Use them to do what I would do if I were there. That's how we thank God for his gift of salvation, which we cannot earn. So in life, you say, I want to do this, I want to give back, or whatever. Just make sure you're not doing it to earn your way into the good graces of God because it's an insult to him. He loves you now as much as he could ever love you. Nothing you could ever do, no money you could ever give to anything could make him love you more. You have to understand that. But once you do understand that, then you say, Lord... Everything you've given me, I want to use it to serve you. This is the good news. This is the golden key that unlocks the meaning of the universe. Lord. Folks, that is the new idea. That's an old idea that Martin Luther rediscovered. It was always there. It was certainly there in the early church. It got obscured. Has it been obscured in your heart? Has it been obscured in your life? see it anew, rejoice, thank God for dying and suffering for you. Know that because of it, you will be with him in paradise forever and ever. And until you get to paradise, spend every moment you have rejoicing and thanking him by how you live your life. Let me pray. Father God, We cannot believe how we do not deserve to know this good news, Lord. We know we don't deserve to know this good news, but you in your love have allowed us to know the secret to the meaning of the universe, the good news of Jesus, the gospel. Lord, thank you for giving us this truth Thank you for giving us your life. Thank you for giving us your righteousness so that when the Father looks at us, he does not see a sinner, but he sees you. He sees your blood covering us. Father God, we thank you for these things, Lord. Put these things deep in our hearts. If we're hearing this today for the first time, Lord God, seal it today that we would not walk another step without walking in gratitude for what you did. We thank you for it. We praise you for it. Anoint us to serve you with gratitude from now till the day we see you face to face. We pray in your mighty name, King and Savior, Jesus of Nazareth. Amen. God bless you.